Hello and welcome to another episode of Exploring Mental Illness, Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask. I'm Derek Molhan, joined once again by Carrie Ballou from Fuller Hospital. Hello. Uh, hello, Derek. How are you? I Honestly, it was a rough week. It was a very rough week um, for those in the um, general vicinity of where we do this in Attleboro, Massachusetts. One of my lifelong places of Pawtucket Red Sox and moving to Worcester. That's like a gut punch for me. It's been a very up and down week, mostly down. People just ask me about the Paw Sox. It's, it's very depressing. It's got me in a kind of a depressive state right now. So, But I spent my childhood. I started there when I was 13. And I left when I was 31, and then I came back this year, and now they're going to be leaving. So a lot of emotions, and it just I'm really sick of people asking me about it <laughs> because they know my, my time there. So, um, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. I'll enjoy it for the next two years. And go from there. But my job doing camera over there got me another job with the Providence College Friars. So with the with the bad comes the good. So that's not a bad thing. That sounds like a coping skill that you're using. I'm trying. I'm trying. So uh, how about yourself? I'm doing pretty okay. I actually noticed when you came in, I'm like, he doesn't seem quite like himself. So, but you're right. Absolutely. Good days and bad days. I'm doing all right. Um, Been busy. I think that as a working parent, uh, when we're recording this podcast, we're getting close to the school year. So I am trying to multitask job, a parent who is having medical issues and a young daughter. And so there's a lot of stress and anxiety. I would say right now, we've been trying to work on positive coping skills and also working on some mindfulness, learning a lot about that from our previous podcast and staying present. So doing all right. Why don't we get right into it? We have a special guest in studio, as we always do, with a nice smile on her face, even though there's no cameras, but keep the smile up because that's good mojo. All right, Megan. Yes, we have Megan Piscopello. So Megan is a clinician. She'll get a little bit more into her role and what she does, but she is a clinician. Uh, We know each other and are familiar through the networking we've done through our Greater Attlebar Recovery Network and the Drop-In Center as well. So um, Megan is extremely experienced, and she'll get a little more into what she does, but she is going to present to us some information on sectioning. So for folks that are listening, you probably may or may not have heard that word at some point in your experience, either your direct experience or when you're with a loved one, and you're wondering, how can I get my loved one some help? So Megan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I work for South Bay Community Services. I've been with them for about six years. I really uh, decided to become a social worker kind of from the way that I was raised. My mom was a psychiatric nurse at a juvenile delinquent center in Connecticut. And my father is a social worker. He worked for the state of Connecticut as well. So kind of raised to understand the importance of helping others, basically. So I chose to uh, become a social worker after college, and I've been in the field since. Um, I currently have my LICSW, so big accomplishment. I've been working in the field now like eight years or so. Most recently, I've been a supervisor, so having the opportunity to grow other clinicians, help them work with their clients, things like that. And uh, could you, I'm sorry, could you just tell sure. everybody what um, an LISCW is? Oh, sure. Yes. So an LICSW is a licensed independent clinical social worker. So it's kind of the highest level you can 
be as a practitioner at this point. The only reason I knew that it was because where where my therapist is, they have two of those in the same office. Yes. So that's definitely, you know, where we strive to to reach. Great point, Derek. What is the difference between a licensed social worker and say a licensed mental health counselor, an LMH L MHC. Right. So there is a little difference. I would say um, primarily it's kind of what your license allows you to do per the state that you work in. So in Massachusetts, LICSWs have more eligibility to see certain insurances and the opportunity to section. And LMHC is not able to do so. um, And there's some insurance requirements that they don't meet. I would say that they're pretty similar, though, in terms of role. There's some limitations, but, you know, still a person with that really good clinical experience who's working with others. Awesome. Thank you for that information. Sure. So we'll let you continue. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt like that. But no, we, no. Just to get that information out there. So um, Yeah, I probably speak in acronyms that people are like, I have no idea what that means. So that's helpful for me to explain it a little bit better. Basically, my job is to, like, ensure the safety of clients, right, help them reach their goals um, and working with staff to help them also help their clients. It's a lot of juggling balls, I would say. There's never a dull day, but the experience is really great. I really love what I do, so I feel pretty fortunate. Why don't we just get right into it? How do we, if we have a loved one who doesn't think they need help, and I only know that when my mom was... When we try to get her help for her alcoholism, obviously it was, I don't need the help. You need the help because you're trying to take away the alcohol, which is their life. Same thing. Some people, I don't have mental illness. I don't have a problem. You're the one who has the problem. They don't want to be admitted. You've tried to, and they just check themselves out. So why don't we get into how do we fight this? How do we get somebody the help that they need? So, well, there's two different types of sections that people will hear a lot of. You'll hear a Section 12 or a Section 35. A Section 12 is a pink paper mechanism, and it moves a client or person, depending on your role or relationship with them, to a hospital. So they have to meet a specific criteria for a civil commitment. So that's suicidality, homicidality, and a marked impairment in judgment. That is really difficult sometimes. The suicidality and the homicidality are a little easier, but the marked judgment can become a gray area because it's kind of to your discretion. A civil commitment's a big responsibility because it's basically me saying you don't have the capability to make this decision on your own. So it's kind of taking away someone's right. And that's really challenging, especially being a social worker. We believe in people making their own choices. You know, we're really meeting them where they're at and helping them make their goals. So once a person, if I were to deem someone incapable of making that choice for themselves to keep themselves safe or if someone else was at risk because of their behavior, I can facilitate a Section 12. So really what that means is that uh, you will be brought to the hospital. And at that point, the person has to get Uh, evaluated by a physician. And the physician can then put a 72-hour stay in place. So there's only a couple of roles that can section 12 a person. So a physician, a nurse practitioner, a psychologist, um, a psychiatric nurse as well, a police officer, or a licensed independent social worker. So I think, you know, if you're dealing with something in the community at your home, the police are really going to be your best avenue for a Section 12. For myself or another social worker to do it, I have to assess that person, meaning I have to have some sort of interaction with them, whether that's in person or over the phone. 
Right. So if someone's calling in and they're really not making sense, I can facilitate it that way. That's a really rare occasion and something I would try not to do. I would really want to do it in person to ensure that I'm making the right clinical decision. So that's one avenue. Um, The second one is the Section 35. So this is really for family members and they have to go to the courthouse. Section 35 is the best way if someone is dealing with substance use. So it's not for mental health. It's really geared towards substance use where the Section 12 kind of sits more on the mental health side. But there's limitations, of course, because a family member can't just call me and say they're not doing well. Does that make sense? No, it does. Because I mean, if if you get into a fight with a family member, they could just say, hey, I, I need a Section 35 right now just because they don't want to deal with a problem. Right. Even if there is no problem, they could just lie about it and that would be it. And what are the parameters for the Section 35? You, you kind of explained to us the who can Section 12 somebody. Right. So who can Section 35? Is it the same group of people? It's not. So it's a police officer, a physician, a spouse, a blood relative, a guardian, or a court official. I can't Section 35 someone, unless they were my family member, of course. But so it is a very different role. And I would say the process is a little different. So you have to go into the courthouse, fill out paperwork. A judge has to approve it. And then typically, depending, you know, the police have five days to give the warrant in order for them to be uh, brought in for treatment. And then the treatment's different, too. So there's specific programs for this. So typically, they'll go to... um, It's called Men's Addiction Treatment Center in Brockton, uh, Mass Alcohol and Substance Abuse Center in Bridgewater and Plymouth, I believe, Women's Addiction Treatment Center in New Bedford, Women's Recovery from Addictions Program in uh, Brockton. So it's not just like you're going to go to the closest emergency room, which you would with a Section 12. I've often gotten the question at Fuller, and back when I first started, and I was learning more about sections, one of the popular questions was, does Fuller accept Section 35s? And um, I, of course, had to start doing a little bit more research on what's a Section 35. And I found out about the fact that there are, besides being limitations and certain criteria, that there are certain facilities that folks would would go to if they were Section 35. Now, with a Section 12... Is there that same level of restriction in terms of the certain places that somebody could go, say, in the state of Massachusetts, for instance? Not that I'm aware of. So basically, so if I was at the office right now and we deemed someone uh, meeting criteria for a Section 12, I do the assessment, I agree, put the paperwork in. So what happens is I fill out this piece of paper. It's pink. And so basically, once that gets filled out, it gets faxed to the police station so that they have it, Um, then I call over to the nearest emergency room because that's what happens. You have to get them immediately to the closest emergency room. I had one person one time say, you know, I'd prefer to go here. And I said, unfortunately, I I can't guarantee that, nor is that going to happen because Sturdy is right down the street. So once they get there, it's really up to the emergency department to determine what bed is available because the physician has to also deem them you know, in need for the evaluation for potentially an inpatient level of care. So I think it's really more bed availability at that point. So I watch a very popular show on on Fridays and Saturdays called Live PD. Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, I have heard of it. I haven't watched it, though. For anybody who's never seen it, it's, it's police work in real time. It's live every Friday and Saturday. In fact, they are in Warwick, Rhode Island filming now. But I notice, like you said, they section 12 a lot of people right on site. They put them in the ambulance and they go – the problem that I have with that is 
you'll see the same people on TV next week. Right. And the police will say, we dealt, if you notice, we dealt with this person last week. They get out for lack of beds or they sign themselves out. What can we do and, and how can we keep these people in longer or are they just able to get out after 72 hours? What is the criteria for them to be able to leave? Well, so the max would be the 72-hour um, hold. I think that's a, not the best term I could use. But, um, yeah, we really can't mandate long-term treatment. So I think there is more of a systems issue that we have in place. You know, we don't have a lot of beds. There's a lack of availability. Um, and that's not the hospital's fault. That's because we haven't funded what we really need to address the mental health, in my opinion. Um, Would you also put the substance abuse in that same category? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, insurance plays a piece in this as well. Insurance is only going to pay for a certain period of time for levels of care. Um, So managed care can be a barrier to people accessing potentially the correct level of care. The police have actually said that right on scene. They said, you know what, they're going to be out in 72 hours because they either can't pay, they're homeless, or there's a lack of beds. And the police get very upset because they're like, sometimes we feel like we're just spinning our wheels. Right. I mean, and if you think about it, depending on what that person is experiencing, depending on their diagnosis, is it the comorbidity of mental health and substance use? Is it just mental health? Is it just substance use? You know, I, I think it's hard to think of them in silos. I think they really kind of have a stronger connection than people understand. And if someone is in heavy addiction, 72 hours a week inpatient isn't necessarily going to be, in my opinion, enough time. So to get in those longer six months programs, like they're very intense and they can be expensive. People pay a lot of money sometimes out of pocket to go to some of these longer term cares. And uh, that needs to be addressed. We want to be able to to provide the right level of care. But at the same time, right, people have the right to make their own choices. And we don't want to take that away from them either. So they can sign themselves out. And I do believe, to some extent, that if someone is not ready for treatment, it's not the right time for them. There has to be, you know, there can be some resistance because there's resistance to change anyway for everybody. Um, So kind of getting involved in treatment, I think, is overwhelming in itself. So I think a little resistance is okay, but if someone is really not ready for change, it's not going to be effective. I checked myself in. I knew I had a problem. And that would be well, and that's a, a, a condition. That's a voluntary, right? So you, right. And you, I'm still and I'm still paying off bills, but you know what? It's only money at this point. They can't take what I don't have, but what I've gotten out of it allows me to be able to work to pay off those bills or else I'd still be huddled on my couch in my apartment just every day waiting to die. I wanted my life back. I have an uncle who doesn't want to go through therapy. He's just happy being a hermit and just being afraid of everything in life. And it's it's horrible. But, you know, we've asked him, do you want to go somewhere? I'll I'll take you. I'll take you there. And he's just, no, no, he just just kind of gave up on things. So for our listeners, that may sound familiar. You have somebody— that you see is struggling substantially. And what we mean by substantially, and and correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, obviously we talked about with a Section 12, if they are um, threatening to hurt themselves or making an attempt to hurt themselves or threatening somebody else um, seriously as well as, um, or if they are literally unable to function 
and their day-to-day life because of symptoms of mental health, that's when you as a loved one or if, again, there's somebody in your network who is a social worker or if you feel the need to contact the police or even have a, a, an officer who you're familiar with would be able to help that person get the help that they need even if they don't believe it. And I think that for some families too, it's probably a little bit overwhelming and they feel guilty. Like, should I do this? What if they're really not sick? What if, what, a lot of what ifs. What if my husband leaves me? Or what if my wife leaves me? Or what if they don't talk to me again? Or there's a lot of fear when you are saying, I got to hit the button, right? I got to make sure that they get the help they need because they don't think they need help. But me as an outsider can see that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the what ifs that you're referring to, I mean, especially when it comes to the Section 35, right, there's specific DPH programs or DMH programs that is the requirement, that that's where they go, right? So the Section 12 also, it's bed availability. So what if you live in Attleboro? What if Fuller's full? (laughs) That sounded funny. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Um, If Fuller has no availability, what if they have to go, you know, farther north? And then the family members are like, and now we don't have a way to get to them. So it's like sometimes even those fears of, will I have access to my loved one once they get hospitalized, I think can be a barrier as well. Or in terms of stigma, do I want to, especially those that aren't familiar with mental health or mental health settings, like an inpatient psychiatric hospital, and maybe your only exposure has been watching a movie or seeing spoofs on TV. And so you're wondering, oh my goodness, where am I going to end up sending them? Are they going to be safe? Are they going to get the treatment they need? I think it's really important for families who are in that what if, I don't know what to do right now type of thing to reach out to, even if it's an outpatient program, you know, calling and speaking to a manager to say, this is what I'm dealing with. How do you recommend me moving forward? And like not being, you know, getting over that fear of asking questions. Don't be afraid to ask these questions because someone can make a referral. And you can try, right? Because sometimes it takes a lot of time. So maybe the first referral doesn't work out, but over time it does. Um, And probably it'd be really important for those family members to access some sort of service to Give them support. I mean, it's difficult to watch your loved one suffering from mental health or substance use or both. So making sure they have the appropriate family resources available to them too. If I wasn't in the field that I was in and I felt the need to have to section a loved one, what would make the most sense for me as a community member? Yeah, I think, you know, there's that challenge. So if it's for substance use, I would say go to the courthouse because you can kind of be that proactive person for them. Otherwise, unless, you know, I think you're really looking to speak potentially to the person's physician, you know, their primary care. But then again, we have HIPAA. So there's confidentiality. So, you know, there's only so much a physician can do. For me, I'm thinking really that a police officer is going to be your best avenue if a Section 12 is needed within the community. That's what they do on LIPD. It's it's always, you know, we've tried calling the hospital. We know that if we get a police officer down here, that they are already got the ambulance rolling. And we've got 72 hours at least to figure out what the next step is. Right. So, I mean, it goes back to, you know, I I think I use the primary care in case like you have a, maybe you're the emergency contact, you have a release to speak to their doctor. The doctor might have some understanding of what the person's going through. But, you know, unfortunately, I can't just get called to do a random section for someone. So there's still limitations within that. Do you, and this is a general question, do you feel like the police would be a good um, option just to have a conversation with? 
Because some folks may be like, I don't want to call the police and have them show up at my house. And in your experience, have individuals reached out to a law enforcement agency? You know, in my personal experience, I haven't. So I'm not really sure how that would work. But I think with my personal relationship with some of the police officers we know through the Greater Attleboro Recovery Network, I think there are officers who would certainly take that step to have a genuine conversation with a community member to say, here's what we can do for you. But I can only really speak for our community. I'm not sure how that works in other areas, you know. Absolutely. And, and good shout out for our local right? police. <laughs> um, so for our local community here in Massachusetts, um, in the Attabar area, and the greater Attabar area, we have uh, officers that are dedicated to doing um, more outreach, more yeah people-oriented policing and being more proactive. Um, they're available for a call or they follow up on, a, on an overdose. They often wear plain clothes. Yeah. And I also have a great relationship with some of the folks that um, we're talking about. And it's, it's absolutely an awesome resource to have to know what to do or to ask that question. So I definitely think reaching out to your local police department makes sense because you don't know if they also have a similar team that can reach out and is there just to, to educate. My experience with our police have also been significantly through the Section 12, obviously a psych hospital. So for folks that may be wondering on my end, right? So here's Megan. Megan works in the community. She could legitimately be seeing somebody who could present a, a need, a significant need, but they don't believe that they present a need. And so she may section somebody from an office setting or a community. What that looks like on my end at my psych hospital or at any psychiatric um, hospital is once the person is found to have an, a need for an inpatient level of care, once they are at a hospital or a crisis setting and they're evaluated and that recommendation is made, then the section will continue or will be moved forward to have them transported to a psychiatric setting. If it's a hospital that has a psychiatric unit, they could be going upstairs to their psychiatric unit for the 72 hours. If it is a community hospital such as ourselves, they would be coming to us for 72 hours, and those are 72 business days typically. Put that out there as well. And that allows our clinical team to determine the safety of that individual. I think that if you're scared of, oh no, what's gonna happen to my loved one? Or am I making the right move? You know, I'm gonna say better safe than sorry. If you have that much of a concern that you're not sure, making that step, though it may seem uncomfortable right away, is going to allow that individual to be assessed by a professional. And the professional could say, you know what? This is the kind of help they need. That is out of your hands. That really is in the hands of the, of the professional to make that assessment. You're just trying to keep them safe. And same thing for, for Fuller, for our hospital. Our clinical team, when we get somebody sectioned to us, section 12 to us, focuses on, and their job is in that 72 hours, they have to determine, is that person, what is going on with that person? Are they safe? If they're not, what needs to be done to address it? And then they have to make decisions too. Do we continue the hold and have them continue treatment? Some folks will voluntarily, after that three-day, sign a voluntary agreement to stay because maybe after that 72 hours and talking with our clinical team, they realize, you know what? I really do need some help. And so they can voluntarily stay with us and continue their treatment. Or if they are still in a state of, I don't need this help, 
possibly, and I'll just use an example, they could be extremely psychotic and they could think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. And our team could see that there is definitely a safety issue or a community safety issue then our team can continue that Section 12 and ensure that person receives the treatment that they need. I mean, when you think about it, if we're, the Section 12 is really, when we get someone into an inpatient level of care, we're looking to stabilize, right? Absolutely. And most of the time, that's going to be a short-term process. You know, to me, in inpatient level of care, it's a high threshold. I mean, it's difficult. It's the highest level of care. It's the highest you're, level of you're care. At, you're, you're, you're in crisis. You're yeah. in the highest level of need. We want people to step down because they do get a little bit more um, choices in their life. So, you know, going to – if you are inpatient, you know, is it the best recommendation to go to a partial hospitalization program, step down to an IOP, which is uh, intensive outpatient therapy, and then transition to, you know, whether it's weekly or biweekly outpatient level of care. I think we miss that transition a lot. Um, we go from almost like inpatient to outpatient. And then a lot of that goes back to availability of resources as well, insurance, and that could be a whole other episode. Something that was mentioned before that Derek had mentioned is the idea of using sections, whether it's a Section 12 or a Section 35, as a tool to get back at somebody that is not unheard of for any folks that have either experienced it thought about it, we're concerned. That's kind of where Megan and where a clinician such as Megan would come in because, like, say... If I were to section somebody for other reasons besides the reasons that I am giving and presenting to the court or based on my on my perception, the reality is is once they get sectioned, they are going to see a clinician. And that clinician is going to be able to determine, hey, this person's okay and this person's not okay. There's not much – you can't go beyond that step. I would find it hard to believe that somebody could go from in that process – that that wouldn't be caught if it were a person who was not clinically unstable. Right. So, I mean, that's why, you know, it's required that I assess the person. I have to speak to them. I have to determine that there is um, marked impairment in their judgment. I mean, it has to be significant. Or, you know, if someone is saying, I'm thinking about killing myself and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to leave this office and do X, Y, and Z. I can't section someone for passive suicidal ideation um, because people can have thoughts, right? We all have thoughts. We all think things sometimes and we're like, ooh. I always, I always joke with my therapist because, you know, they're always saying, you know, do you feel like you want to hurt yourself? I'm like, no. Do you want to hurt other people? Every time I get in my car, you know, and, and, and they finally, you know, the first time they're just like, really? I'm like, no, it's a joke. Right. You know, and they, they finally, you know, I always come up with something different. So, you know, they, they're, they're okay with that. Right. A thought is a thought. That doesn't mean that we are going to act on a thought. That's why it, the suicidal, whether it's a gesture, you know, we have to really assess that. Is this something that could occur? And if I think there is plan with intent, then, you know, I need to step in to ensure the safety. Same with um, homicidality. So if someone says, oh, I just want to kill him, I have to really say, well, what, what do you mean by that? But if someone says to me, you know, I'm so sick of this person, they keep giving me all these problems, I'm going to smash him in the head with a bat. Right? That's really specific. That's worrisome. So then as a social worker, not only do I have to determine, are you potentially going to harm someone because I have to do the Section 12, but then I have a duty to warn. So then I have to contact that other person and say, I just want to let you know. Um, and so that's like a break of uh, reason where I could break HIPAA is to like warn someone of their safety. 
So I have a question. So sure. say say I'm say I'm married and my wife is driving me nuts and I make something up. Mm-hmm. You go in and you realize she is completely perfect. What are the repercussions for somebody who does that? I mean, can they be arrested for illegally under false pretenses? Or there's got to be some sort of punishment. I'm not really sure, to be honest. I've never had someone uh, do that under my care. I would assume it's probably occurred, though. So if you called me and said, you know, my wife is X, Y, and Z, but I haven't seen her, I can't facilitate a section. So if you called me that upset, I would recommend, sounds like you need to call 911. So then the police would be there, and then they would have the assessment determination. So the Section 12, no one can really call in and say, like, this person. If someone who maybe was their loved one and I had a release and they're like, you know, they're in the bathroom, you know, they're not going to call me if someone's in the midst of an attempt or something like that. They're going to call 911. So if there was a plan, if someone is thinking that way, I would still have the opportunity to complete an assessment. So there wouldn't, I don't perceive a retaliation in terms of a section 12. And I'm pretty sure for a section 35, there is also- It just seems like a false imprisonment type- I mean, that would be- Idea, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that would be very- and that's why Upsetting. there's so many steps to yeah. – it's, it's not that easy to get people the treatment they need. This is the purpose of the section is really to start the process. There's red flags, and we're going to initiate – that someone get assessed. It really is an assessment yeah, piece of it. And there's actually two steps. There's the there's the U assessment to determine if a section's needed, and then there's a secondary assessment that determines um, if they need inpatient level of care right. or some other types of services. My section 12 is saying, I've deemed you the need to go to the hospital, and that's what's going to happen right now. And if you think about even the section 35, you go to court, the judge permits this, they're still going to be assessed by the police. So the police are really a very important part of this because they can do both. Um, so they have the experience. So at no point do I think someone could just really get hospitalized under a false pretense. I know one thing on Live PD that they want to get people to know is that police are not just about cops and robbers. Police are they're your friend. They diffuse family arguments when there are domestic disputes. They do everything. And I know that, especially in Greenville, South Carolina, which is one of their main focuses because there's always a lot of action going on down there, they always end, you know, we're going to get this person to the hospital, we're going to get them taken care of, always better to be safe than sorry. And then 15 minutes later, they could go to a shooting. And then 15 minutes later, they might be in the middle of a, a mental illness case. Their theory is, Safe than sorry. I would rather have this person go away in an ambulance, be checked out, and be 100% and know that I saved their life and possibly somebody else's life. Because, I mean, the police, they do so much. And it's community policing. So I think reaching out to the police, that's part of their job. They expect that. That's part of their civic duty. I agree. You know, if you call the police station, they can also direct you to other services that are available within the community. Good point. There is a difference between 911 and just calling your local police station. Right. So (laughs) knowing that you can just speak to them and they might be able to guide you, um, but also knowing your town social worker. You know, there's a lot of ways to identify resources in the area. So I think it's really important because I know South Bay would certainly welcome a phone call from a concerned loved one to say like, well, this is what we can try to do. Um, and that doesn't always mean that you're calling to get someone hospitalized either. They might not meet that level of care. They might just need an intensive outpatient program or, or something like that. So I think it's just asking the questions and not being afraid. Um, I think when we're afraid to discuss mental health, it just adds to that stigma that you know people aren't experiencing this when 
Um, a lot of us do on a daily basis, um, and that's okay. If a person knows that they need help, they're afraid to go to the hospital, but they know they need help and they're worried that they might be um, committed in, what happens there? Sure. So I think that that's an honest fear that someone could have. Coming in to see someone for counseling could lead to an inpatient level of care. So really what is my job when I'm meeting with someone, whether for the first time, um, it, we get what I would consider informed consent. I basically outline to them what my role in the therapeutic process is. So explaining to them the situations that may lead to me needing to section them. If someone meets that criteria, it's my duty to make sure that they get to a hospital, or at least get to the hospital to get evaluated. But I think that there's also times where it's not just inpatient. We might uh, refer for the partial hospitalization program or an intensive outpatient because they can maybe still go to work and then go to the classes at night. So they can maintain what things that are important to them, whether it's work, family obligations, but still access care. So unfortunately, I can't wipe that fear away for the, from them. Um, I would just be honest with them and review with them what they feel would maybe warrant them wanting to go for a high level of care. And I would let them know if I observe something that I might need to make that section or recommendation. So there is no black and white to that. It is a very gray situation, and that is a potential. However, I would really want to encourage them to know you don't need to be afraid to go to the hospital. Um, you're not going to be there forever. Um, you're just going to get the care you need in that moment, and then we're going to, you know, aftercare plan. Like make sure you're set up with the right, whether it's an additional service or other community resources and supports that will help them thrive and meet like their personal best. And that's something um, from an inpatient perspective, um, having had conversations with some of our patients, especially when they are a section 12 is what brought them to us, right? They didn't voluntarily decide to come and get care. There is a lot of anxiety that's created around the I don't want to be here. And they think very much so in terms of how long am I going to be here? Am I ever going to leave? You know, there's a lot of, of thoughts that go through their minds, understandably so. That's the stigma of television also. You see them come with, with the, you know, the white ambulance, the guys in the white outfits, the straight jacket, throw you in the back, and you get put in a padded room. Exactly. I think there's a lot of stigma on TV that, that is not doing the mental health care society any good whatsoever. And I think what we need to emphasize is that when it comes to inpatient care and other services that, you know, we call ourselves an acute psychiatric hospital and acute means it's short term. You know, we only see folks for a short amount of time as long as is needed to stabilize them, to make them not in crisis and to get them to the next level of care. And so, you know, it's easy for folks, again, to get kind of caught up in the mentality. So it's really important for us as um, providers to reassure our patients that it is only temporary. I say that all the time when I hear those things. I'm like, guys, it's only temporary. You know, this is not permanent. You are getting the care that you need. I think understanding, too, that if you had a broken bone, you would go see your doctor, right? Yeah. And Unless you wanted to continue to have a broken bone, I guess. Um, you would go to the doctor. If you needed surgery, you would go to the hospital. We have very much normalized our physical well-being, um, and we really need to work towards that for our mental health. It, it does get better when you – just like when you receive treatment for your physical – 
need, it will get better and your mental health will get better if you start to treat it. And that's really important that you need to start a program somewhere or try to because that's how you're going to make small little steps. And once you kind of start noticing that these things are working and you're starting to feel a little bit better or that you can manage a little bit better. Maybe you're not even feeling better. You're able to kind of see things slightly differently. I think it really draws people back to be like, oh, this is working and I'm going to keep going with this. And understanding that it's maintaining it, you uh, likely will have to identify those coping skills and what works for you and maintain those things, kind of like healthy living. You know, it's not just going to be, I used coping skills for three days and now I'm better. Um, It's... It's an everyday thing. Like we have to shower every day to be clean and uh, you have to re-motivate yourself every day too. It's not just going to come naturally. I love the example that you gave of the broken bone because it's exactly how we look at it at Fuller. It's not as black and white or invisible. We explain to folks that you're here for emergency treatment. You're here to get stabilized. One of the things that we talk to our patients and we talk to our staff about during our orientation process is the fact that one of the reasons why we, we strive to provide what we call service excellence or, you know, uh, which is like the highest quality of care and, and essentially service to those that we provide care for is because folks who have mental health issues, it's a chronic condition. And so you're going to have episodes. You're going to have moments in your life where you're going to end up in crisis. Maybe it's once, maybe it's twice, maybe it's dozens of times. But to understand that folks are going to have come back to us or we want them to come back to us or to go to some place where they feel like can get the care that they need um, and the treatment that they need. So maybe in in some cases it's like a broken bone, but in some cases it could be like a chronic disease. It could be like a diabetes, diabetes, for instance, a condition, a condition that you will have for the rest of your life that can flare up. And so it's really, really important to be mindful of your symptoms. Yeah, and it's scary at first, right? You're experiencing something that you you know you have it, but you don't really understand it. Where is it coming from? What do I do with it now that it's here? So it's a learning process, and you have to first learn your symptoms. You might think you really know them, but then you start to go, oh, when I experience this feeling, it's associated to this. And then you start to learn how to cope with that. And then once you can cope with that one, you gain a little bit of strength and you can tackle the next thing. So it's really a process of understanding yourself um, and making small steps to make that bigger change. But the next time you're in crisis, it's going to be a little bit more familiar. You might be able to catch it sooner. Does that make sense? No, it does. Because I have peaks and valleys. Right. And the thing is that I have more peaks than valleys. I will say to the the listeners that the good and the bad about the valleys are when I have, you know, an anxiety attack or a panic attack, which I haven't had in, you know, knock on wood, you know, for, for a long time, when you don't have them for a long time, you think it's something different. Right. So what I have to do is I have to go down my checklist. The first, I'm a type two diabetic. The first thing I do is check my blood sugar. If my blood sugar is okay, then I go through my mental checklist. Okay, was there a trigger? Was there? And then if there is nothing, then I have to just say, you know what? It's just anxiety. And within three or four minutes, which would normally, you know, back in the day, would I would already be on 911 having the, the ambulance come to get me to check me out. I go through my checklist and it's just like, okay, it's just the same old stuff. 
Sure. Even though it feels different, I think it might be something else, but I know deep down it's not. And then it's just like, all right, forget about it. Don't dwell on it. Don't think about why it happened. It's going to happen. And then if it doesn't go away, I mean, my doctors gave me Ativan to take in case of emergency. Mm -hmm. And I have been prescribed 10 Ativans every year for the past five years. And I have taken two over five years. So that's 50 pills. I've only had to take two, and I took two on the same day for a funeral. That's because what I, I like to refer to as the lioness blanket. You just keep them in your back yeah, pocket. You keep, yeah, I have, I have them with they me. They almost and, work is the same way. Yeah, but it, yeah, it, is, it is a little crutch. You know, everybody's like, well, don't be a hero. You know, they're there for a reason. I've come this far with my coping skills, and you know what to look out for. And it can't be cured. It can be controlled. So... If I get a valley, I'm just like, wow, this hasn't happened in a while. Go through my checklist. And then after it's over, I can say, you know what? I beat it. Good for me. Now it's nothing but. I'm sure your checklist has evolved over time, though. And I think that's what's really important for people to understand. You know, you might not have understood it before. And now you have this developed checklist that helps you manage those valleys. And hopefully they're not as low as they were before. You can catch it earlier or you know. So I think it's important for people to know, or I hope that was, or maybe that was your experience. No, that's exactly what happened. That, you know, it it might take a couple of crises to understand, you know what, I do need a process for this. So... Focusing on the the sectioning piece, you know, if you're somebody who's looking to section a loved one or has had a loved one who is being sectioned or maybe you've been sectioned yourself, maybe you required a section or maybe it's because you didn't quite understand what was happening um, this first time. The the hope is, is that if you ended up finding yourself or your your loved one found themselves in a similar position mentally where they were what we call decompensating and they were in crisis again, maybe that next time is not going to be a section. Maybe that next time is going to be a conditional voluntary where they walk into the hospital and they're like, I need help. They're not being forced in. They're going in on their own accord saying, I need help, get assessed, and then, you know, uh, go from there. I mean, I think obviously a Section 12 and a Section 35 probably is not what that individual wants, right? They don't want their choices and freedom being taken away. But it could potentially be the beginning of their recovery. Exactly. You know, and you could be facilitating a very positive step in their lives. Absolutely. And it, obviously, me sitting in my chair, it's easier for me to say it or feel that way. But if people do try and look at it from the other side, this could be the step in the right direction to getting people in maybe just access to care. Maybe the emergency room says, hey, you just need. A partial program. You know, you don't need to go inpatient. And like that could still lead to the next step. See, and I've done partial program and I try to do partial program at least once a year, even if I don't need it. I don't have to go for all five days. And I look at the component I'm struggling with in all my valleys right now. These are the things that I'm not struggling with. So I'll go in for a couple of days and refresh myself because, I mean, there's always new techniques out there. I find that there's always new things to go out there. I'm not talking about meds. I'm talking about ways to cope mentally with your mental illness. So I'll go in at least once a year and I will look at the lineup and say, you know what, I I need to refresh these two things. So I'll go in for a couple of days. I mean, it's eight to five. I try to avoid anything that's going to bring up old memories or anything that's going to set me back. But the things that I need to deal with, a couple of days is a couple of days. And it's, you know, for my own health, that's the greatest thing in the world that I can pick and choose if I have any anxiety or panic that goes more than two or three days, 
I'm calling my therapist and I say, you know, I'm going to I'm going into the partial program just for a couple of days to refresh myself. If I'm having depression for, for days on end, I'm functionally depressed because I still go to my job. I still do my work. I need to see what's going on. And then they'll check my meds to make sure my meds are okay. And usually it's not a med change. It's just a, could be the change of seasons. Like I said, people won't realize how devastating the Paw Sox moving to Worcester is for me, but it's a really tough situation. And there are triggers. doesn't mean I need meds. It just means I need to focus and figure out something else. And that's one of the primary purposes of a partial program. I'm sitting here listening to you, Derek, and I'm just like, you are saying exactly what I think anybody who's familiar or works with a partial program what some call a PHP, partial hospitalization program, or provide it with an IOP, which is an intensive outpatient program. It, it's what you want somebody to say, because you are defining what the purpose really is for those types of programs. I know for me, it wasn't until I started working at Fuller that I even knew what a partial hospitalization program was. I didn't know what that was. And so when it was explained to me, and, and now in turn, I explain it to people every day, when they call the hospital and they connect because they want to learn more about our services, when they tell me what their need is, a lot of times that's a partial, a PHP is exactly what they need because they're in the community. They know there's something wrong with them. They're struggling and they don't want to reach a level of care that could be considered crisis. It's preventative, right? And especially for folks that are familiar with their symptoms and know their mental health like you, where you can you know your signs and triggers and you're like, you know what? Before I let this get too out of hand, I'm going to voluntarily, in partial programs of voluntary, I'm going to voluntarily refer myself and I'm going to get stabilized. There's that word again. I'm going to get stabilized and I'm going to go back. And it's outpatient, right? So you can go in the morning, you go back to your family at night. For folks that work, you are able to get uh, types of medical leave to address um, that need as well. Well, and you don't have to go eight to five either. I mean, if your two components are in the morning, you could be there for two or three hours and that's it. The IOP program, the intensive outpatient. Right. You know, I mean, it depends on, you know, what you want to look at. But the other thing that I realize is when I go in there, there are people who are very new to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't mind being a leader if I can help people. I always wind up like people will talk to me afterwards oh, how did you learn this technique? How did you learn that technique? I'm just like, sometimes I make up my own techniques that the doctors say, hey, that, you know, that's a good idea. You know, that's not in the textbook. And then people come to me. And I feel better knowing that I just bettered myself, but I also helped other people with techniques that they never thought of that the doctors never thought of either because everybody has to come up with their own coping techniques. There are the general basic ones, but then, you know, you come up with your own things. When David Letterman was on the air, I've spoke about this, you know, many times, I knew at least for one hour I would not panic, I would not have anxiety because David Letterman was, he would make me laugh, take my mind off everything. But as soon as he was done, everything started over again. And when he went off the air, I had a problem. I was trying to go to sleep at 11.30 and I couldn't. And then I found, you know, I have a DVR and I would DVR the price is right and let's make a deal because it's fun. I have to watch the news just to know what's going on locally. But now I watch this and I have fun and I don't have problems, you know, going to sleep anymore. You know, I mean, there are things that are on my mind that keep me awake at night sometimes, but you have to find that. And I found that thing to replace David Letterman at night. 
and I don't even look at the TV because I can just I just like to imagine the people who are on there. I know all the games. I know what they look like. So that was one of my coping skills to get to you know to get to sleep at night. So I think people underestimate the best part of my job is my clients um, and what they've taught me. I don't teach them much. They teach me everything. They're experiencing certain feelings or thoughts, behaviors. Then they show me how they overcome it. I see their resiliency and all of their strengths. And then I go work with a new client who's experiencing a similar thing. And I go, huh, I can use that coping skill to share. Because it it's not coming from a textbook. It came from real life. Like this really worked. And I feel so fortunate in that. And I think that's where those groups that you join are so lucky to have you because you're the best teacher that they can have because you can truly speak from their experiences, you know. Even if it is an experience I've had, I don't share that with my client, right? Like there's a little boundaries that have to go in. So I think, you know, the power of groups. I don't think we hear the word recovery enough in mental health. We hear it with substance abuse. Sure. And we hear it with dual diagnosis, which is when you have both a psychiatric diagnosis and a substance abuse diagnosis. But I don't hear it enough, but I'm feeling like we're, and especially with um, some of the projects we've done locally and some of the, and things such as this podcast, we are focusing on the concept of mental health recovery. It's not a cure. There is no cure, but there is definitely recovery and recovery from some of the highs and lows, the peaks and valleys that are in your life and also services that can help support your recovery. And part of recovery is listening to others who talk about their own experiences. My, my therapist and my, I'm lucky enough to have a therapist and a psychologist. I'm a psychiatrist. You know, one does the meds and the other I just talked to. Not once in the 25 years, and, and even if I was cured tomorrow, I would still go to both. Even if I was 100% healthy, if, if somebody took away all everything, I would still go. This country needs to realize that going to talk somebody independently, no matter if you have problems or not, if you think you feel, I don't think you have to have mental illness to go see a therapist. I think it's just one of those things that people should just do because they can get an unadulterated view from someone who doesn't know you. And you get more, I mean, if you're going to lie to your therapist, it's not going to work. But the other thing is that my, none of my therapists ever gave me the answers. They made me find those answers. I had to work hard. They would not tell me. They would give me questions lead me in the right direction, but then I would have to find the answer. And that's that's a lot of work. But it also saves in the long run having to call that therapist three or four times a day. I'm having a problem. I'm having a problem. No, you worked for it. You know where it is. Go back. You know, if I have a rough day, I'll call my therapist. All right, what did we do before? Relaxation. Take my mind off things. Do this. Do that. Just go right back to the basics. And I have the basics. I have, I have had the sheet on my refrigerator that's been there literally for 20 years. The paper is yellow. The pencil is faded. It was the four first things that I ever learned when I was at my worst. And that has been on my fridge, and it will never leave my fridge. I also have a copy of it in my phone. So if I'm on the road, when you see it on paper and somebody else has written it out for you, then you know that they're not just making it up. It's just like, oh my God, these are the symptoms I'm having. Well, how did the hospital know I was having these symptoms? Because it's general. It's normal when you have these types of of mental illnesses. Right. The diagnoses have certain criteria, right? So there are going to be those cookie cutter coping skills that we have a really good 
understanding that it's likely going to work because you have X diagnosis. And we know that with this diagnosis, this treatment path typically can be very effective. But then it's so individualized after that because recovery is individualized. What's going to work for me might not work for Carrie. It might not work for Right, Austin. and that's that, that's um, where I like doing the things when I go into the, the outpatient. Yeah. I can give them tips. I have a piece of paper. Say that's turned over and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, are you feeling lightheaded or dizzy? Do you feel like you're going crazy? Do you feel like you're feeling out of body? Oh, yeah, I do. You flip open the paper and that's the exact diagnosis that the hospital is giving you. And it becomes more real, and I think it calms people down because they realize they can look at I'm not going crazy because the hospital says I'm not because they got it on a piece of paper. They've already diagnosed me, and it's on paper. And I think seeing it on paper also helps a lot because you can look at it almost as a checklist. Yes, I'm feeling this. Yes, I'm feeling this. Okay, let's get some treatment for this. Right. And when you do look at those diagnoses and the criteria for them, right, you might not have all. That's why it's like, you know, hit, they have to have three out of the seven or something like that. And that's where things shift a little bit. But I do agree. I think sometimes people fear treatment because they're afraid that they're not going to be understood. And then when you kind of say to them, you know, based on what you're sharing with me and reporting to me, you're meeting a criteria for this. And then you kind of give them some psychoeducation on it. And they go, oh, there's a little relief they're, there, they're, and then they get a little right, more hope. Exactly, hope, it's like, you know, oh, I didn't make this up. Like this yeah. is a real experience, and other people have had it. So it kind of just, I think, it makes totally it a little can, less scary. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think we should definitely point out too that you know, mental illness, chronic mental health, the the field of psychiatry and psychology have been around for long enough where there is significant evidence-based practices. And that's something that I think about and I tell people about when I'm talking about what a, what a partial hospitalization program is or what an IOP is or what's cognitive behavioral therapy and what's dialectical behavioral therapy or what we call CBT and DBT. A lot of, I know a lot of acronyms, a lot of acronyms, but what it comes down to, these are evidence-based approaches to addressing symptoms on a general level on a grand level mm. essentially right yeah and then again like megan said you just kind of hone it down to what that individual needs but again it's all based on, on on evidence so megan um i think derek and i and austin can agree this has been a fantastic episode and i feel like there's not enough time to get really dive deep into the, all that is sectioning because we did also mention section 35s as well and we just touched upon that um so we'd love to have you back that would be great so let's make this a, we're going to make this a two-part series. So this will be part one with focus on section 12s and the mental health aspect of getting help for your loved one. Would you mind, just for folks that are locally around the Attleboro, Massachusetts area, give us some contact information uh, for sure. your agency? So um, again, I work at South Bay Community Services. You know, check out our website, which is southbaycommunityservices.com, because although we are available in the Attleboro area, um, we have sites across the state, and all of those locations are on the website um, in our different programs, whether it's a day services, early childhood, the CBHI, which is Children's Behavioral Health Initiative, or outpatient services for mental health and substance use. Um, if you're listening and you feel like you want to make a self-referral, please call our intake line at 508-427-5362. And thanks for having me.
Thanks for coming. Well, first and foremost, I'd like to, again, thank Megan for being here. And one of the, the places and one of the projects that's close to our heart as members of the Greater Attleboro Recovery Network is the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center, which I love to give a shout out to. So for folks, again, in this Greater Attleboro, Southeast Massachusetts area, the You Are Not Alone Drop-In Center is a community resource open drop-in that we hold once a month, the last Wednesday of every month at the Murray Unitarian Universalist Church on 50. North Main Street here in Attleboro. Um, we emphasize anonymity and we provide services from support groups to outpatient to inpatient um, needs around mental health, substance abuse, and domestic violence. And if you want to check us out on Facebook, you can type in at symbol, the at symbol, at Attleboro Recovery. You can also contact our local POP team for information regarding the drop-in center at 508-222-1212, extension 1951. I'm Carrie Ballou. I'm the Community Relations Coordinator at Fuller Hospital in Attleboro, Massachusetts. You can check out more information about our services at www.fullerhospital.com, or you can contact myself directly at one 3 fuller and I'm extension 2354. I'm happy to help you out. And I'd like to thank Megan for coming in. We look forward to seeing you uh, on the next podcast. Carrie, thank you for all that information. In case you wanted to email us, if you had any questions, you can email us at mentalillness at wararadio.com. We are on at 6 o'clock on wararadio.com and regular WARA 1320 AM over the air every Monday night at 6 o'clock. You can also find uh, Exploring Mental Illness on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and TuneIn. Feel free to leave a review or a rating on any of these platforms. Um, the more reviews and ratings the show gets, the more you know it will be recommended to others. And there's also a new Facebook group and Facebook page for Exploring Mental Illness where you can join the discussion about mental illness. Uh, you can get the links to the latest shows. Uh, find it just searching Exploring Mental Illness on Facebook. So until we meet again, um, I'm Derek Molhan, and uh, be well, everyone. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.